Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When a mysterious respiratory illness emerged in Wuhan, China in January 2020, politicians, government officials, business leaders, and public health professionals were unprepared to deal with what has turned out to be the most devastating pandemic in a century. And many of the biggest drug and vaccine makers were slow to react or were unable to come up with an effective response. In his latest book, A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine, award-winning Wall Street Journal special writer and uh, investigative reporter and best-selling author Gregory Zuckerman relates the inside story of the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. It's published by Portfolio Penguin Books and brings Gregory Zuckerman to our show now. Welcome. Hey, great to be here. A lot of mistakes were, were made and many of the world's biggest drug and vaccine makers were slow to react or, or weren't able to come up with effective responses. Don't drug companies tend to give vaccines a low priority because there's little profit in them? Yes. So that was one thing that really struck me uh, in my research for for my book. Uh, You would have thought the uh, companies, the researchers, the scientists to save us all would be the vaccine experts, the vaccine giants. And that's Merck, that's Sanofi, that's um, a few others in Europe. Um, And yet they weren't. They didn't step up or they tried. They didn't succeed. They did it half-heartedly. Uh, they weren't as interested in finding a vaccine. And um, it well, wasn't Don't, don't they prefer to sell medicines that have to be taken daily throughout one's life? Right. So that's the thing. Um, if you are a drug company, a statin, something that uh, we have to take every day, <laughs> is more profitable than something every six months, a year, or even more infrequently. Historically, vaccines have been sort of an unpopular business uh, for big pharma, for little pharma, for for medium pharma as well. So it took some real outsiders uh, to pull this thing off. Still, should we be surprised that it took so long for them to take COVID-19 seriously, despite what had been decades of work on messenger RNA, virology, and immunology? Well, that's the thing. On one hand, it seems fast, and it was fast, uh, within 330 days from the time the sequence was revealed uh, in early January uh, 2020, it took only 330 days before we had a vaccine, an approved uh, authorized vaccine, which is historically just remarkable. The average vaccine takes 10 years to develop, um, and the fastest one ever was only four years. So That was uh, mumps. I'm sorry? That was mumps, right? Exactly, exactly, mumps. So it it was ridiculously fast, but, uh, and that's sort of one of the points of my book, uh, a shot to save the world, these approaches, these vaccine approaches, actually um, were in the making, were in the offing uh, for, for decades, literally decades. Researchers have been working on uh, both the mRNA that we discussed, which led to the Pfizer and the uh, Moderna vaccines, but also the, um, it's called the adenovirus approach that led to J&J, uh, as well as the Oxford approach. They also took decades. So there's a lot of hard work that really I don't think has been appreciated. And, and the people that are nervous about these vaccines, I think they seize on the speed, but they don't really uh, realize how much work went into these vaccines. The the, uh, anti-vaxxers question their reliability because mRNA vaccine technology is new or the vaccines seem to have been rushed. Yes, and the mRNA uh, approach is new in that it's never been proven before, only with COVID 
did we uh, see success? Um, but that said, it's been they've been working on it for as I get as I say years and, and even decades. Mm. So it's not an overnight um, approach. Uh, and as of right now, we've had a billion people receiving shots around the world. So uh, with with relatively a few side effects uh, of note that are serious, they've been some, but um, not enough to. Uh, offset the, the, the benefits. So yes, it seems overnight. It seems like mRNA is new and it is new. I've got a lot of hopes for the future. It is new, but um, that shouldn't deter people. It shouldn't worry people too much. Well, uh, this is this book is also a history, and you point out that scientists began to work on the three key vaccine, three key vaccine approaches: mRNA, uh, adenoviruses, and protein subunits around 1990. But that they had many setbacks along the way. Yeah, yeah. I even actually started a little bit earlier. I'm really fascinated by the chase to develop an HIV vaccine. And we all know that we, we haven't succeeded there. And I kind of went into my research thinking, well, yeah, that was a lot of years of wasted time, excuse me, time and effort on the part of the researchers, the scientists. But what I learned is that, yes, um, we've yet to uh, roll out, develop a successful HIV vaccine, they're still working on it. Maybe we'll see in the next few years. But along the way, they learned so much about the immune system, about some of these approaches, about, as I said, as you had suggested too, the adenovirus approach. That was used for HIV. And yes, it was a failure with HIV, but they learned about the approach along the way. They honed it, they improved it, and they started applying it to less challenging viruses, um, both uh, eventually COVID, but even earlier we're talking um, the earlier coronaviruses like SARS, the first SARS, MERS, etc. So I think it's instructive and really important to go back in history, and that's kind of what I do. But it's also entertaining, frankly. There are a lot of really quirky, interesting scientists who make um, small breakthroughs along the way that really haven't been appreciated. And we'll talk about some of them in a moment. But uh, I was just looking at the uh, the three companies that came up with vaccines Moderna was limited financially as late as May 2020, and and Pfizer and uh, BioNTech executives were unable to decide on a vaccine design. Yes. So as fast as they went and as successful as these vaccines have been, I think what's been overlooked is how close we all came to not having successful vaccines. So as recently as May 2020, Moderna had a vaccine, they had a vaccine approach, they had early indications with animals, mammals, that it would be effective. They didn't know for sure, but they were pretty confident. What they did have was funding. Uh, They didn't have the money to produce these vaccines in, in bulk. And having an effective protective vaccine, but not being able to produce enough of it to, to save people really uh, is not helpful. Um, doesn't mean that much. So they, and when I say they, the, the CEO, Stefan Bensel uh, of Moderna, he went everywhere trying to find the money. He went to the Gates Foundation. He went to other nonprofits. Uh, he went to other companies, Merck in, in included, and said, hey, why don't we work together? Get behind me. Sometimes he went to the organizations and, and, and bodies and companies more than once trying to persuade them and no one was interested no one wanted to work with moderna and back moderna's uh, vaccine effort as recently as may 2020 so they pulled it off and you got to give them a lot of credit um there's a lot of persistence but people internally uh, were, were 
really concerned that re that recently in May 2020, the spring of 2020, that they would not be the ones to be able to produce these vaccines to, to save thousands and hundreds of thousands in the world. Well, you referred to Stefan Bancel, the uh, French CEO of Moderna, which is an American company. But he was dismissed by many as a fabulous and accused of being another Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, he's a really fascinating character. For years, he had his way with investors, with venture capital type investors, sovereign wealth funds, all kinds of big pocketed, depocketed investors in the United States, but, but elsewhere too. They were all convinced with his um, approach, the company's approach, and with his presentation. And he basically said, we're going to be the ones to use messenger RNA, which is a molecule. And I can uh, get into that if you'd like, but basically we're going to build messenger RNA molecules and, and inject them into the body and teach the body to fight off illness, fight off disease, etc. And he was a persuasive guy, but people within the world of science were really skeptical. He almost was too persuasive. He raised so much money that people started started getting concerned even. Um, he did strike them as in some ways similar to Elizabeth Holmes, and not just because they both like these uh, black uh, turtlenecks that Steve, <laughs> Steve Jobs also, also favored. Um, both um, Moderna and Theranos, um, Elizabeth Holmes's company, they're very secretive. They, uh, at least for, for many years, Moderna didn't want to share its information, share its studies, share its approach with anybody else. And you can understand why it's a very competitive space and they didn't want anybody hearing what they were doing. And they were convinced they had an approach that would save lives and would change the, the world of science. And they didn't want anybody catching on. But to many in the scientific world, um, when you don't do peer reviewed studies, when you don't share what you're working on, when you're not um, transparent at all, it raises red flags. And people were very concerned about Moderna. They were very worried about Stefan Bancel, and, and, and frankly, he's not a scientist himself, which raised other red flags. He's an engineer. He went to Harvard MBA. You and I might be impressed by that background, but people in the world of science uh, had some skepticism. No, but there were people at Moderna who did play key roles. Were any of them respected uh, at the time? Uh, uh, Stephen Hogue, Eric Wang, Kerry Bernardo, Juan Andres are some of the people you write about. Yeah, they're all interesting characters, um, um, very uh, stubborn and persistent, and they were convinced that mRNA would change the world, even when people on the outside weren't. But I have to say that they were um, a, a, something of a secretive company, so people weren't aware of these small breakthroughs that were taking place. And m much like science, you know, people think of the breakthroughs in science as sort of eureka moments, but... Um, a lot of it is just trial and error and persistence and resilience. And that's what I, the scientists I write about and the uh, researchers within the company, within Endurance and elsewhere, that's, that's basically what made it happen. And people on the outside were not aware that they were making these small breakthroughs. To them, so, so Moderna, for example, at one point got so frustrated with its inability to develop drugs, develop therapeutics, uh, that it, had to give up on that whole effort. And that was, as you mentioned, that, that gentleman, Eric Wong, uh, who was a scientist, but he's also on the business side. And he said, you know, guys, it's not working. Drugs, we're not able to use mRNA with drugs. Maybe someday we can develop drugs using mRNA molecules. But for now, it's not working. But 
I have a feeling here that maybe it'll be more effective with vaccines. And at the time, yeah, again, it was very unpopular to vaccines. People who've been with the Moderna said, wait, we're going to start pursuing vaccines when we've sold this company to the world, to investors, to others as a therapeutics company, as a, as a drug company. But yeah. Eric was pretty convincing, and he convinced his boss, uh, Stephen Ho, who's a doctor as well, and they both said, yeah, let's turn this battleship and start focusing on vaccines. And, you know, we have them to thank. But uh, And that was, his early, that was 2013, so yes. uh, yeah. they were way ahead of the, the rest of the group in thinking along these lines. Yes, and they had to convince others. And it was an unpopular effort, as you had suggested earlier. Vaccines are not very profitable. There's just so much you can charge for vaccines. You get pressure when you want to sell them abroad and if, if you want to try to make money on it. So there are all kinds of reasons not to prefer, pursue vaccines. And in, in some ways, they kind of had to because they were striking out. They were meeting uh, su- such resistance when it came to finding therapeutic drugs that actually worked. So to their credit, they pivoted as a company, and these were the scientists that, that led them in that direction. Although once governments get involved, does don't people see vaccines suddenly as a rather lucrative thing to get involved in? Um, this time around, yes. So in some ways, this is the exception. So Moderna right now is worth about $130 billion as a company, and that's up from a few billion dollars in early 2020. So they've added about $130 billion of market value from these vaccines, from just the COVID vaccine. And that's the only thing they've really seen any success so far. Um, and because they're making so much profit and they figure to, con- to continue. So, yes, uh, over the past years, yeah, I'm sorry, over the past year, Moderna's made a lot of money on the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, BioNTech has too. The German company that's working with Pfizer, some other uh, players uh, who've been successful too. Novavax doesn't have an approved and authorized vaccine yet, but it, it should in the next few months. They have an interesting approach and they should get authorization in the coming months. So right now you look and you say, well, vaccines are really profitable. But again, historically, they haven't been. And it's one of the big reasons why Novavax and Moderna and BioNTech companies we've never heard of. They're the ones saving lives. And again, Merck and Sanofi and GSK are not. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking with George Zuckerman, whose latest book is A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine published by Portfolio Penguin. You interviewed over 300 scientists, executives, and investors. Did any of them explain their reluctance to respond at first or at all? Yeah, well, some of them said, so in other words, I'm talking about Merck in particular right now. There there were scientists within Merck who wanted to chase a COVID-19 vaccine. They put a little bit of work into it. Um, They met some resistance. There was a a conflict within the company. They, there were others who said, we're making a lot of progress with, uh, in in areas like cancer. We're helping people. We're saving people's lives. Uh, We should not take our eye off the ball. And there also was a memory on the, among those at Merck, but elsewhere too, the, of memory of past coronaviruses. So we all remember, or, or potentially some of us remember, that um, there was the first SARS, there was MERS. There have been other experiences with coronaviruses, and they sort of petered out, and um, they weren't anything to really chase if you're a company. And those that did chase it, those that 
spend time working on, on vaccines and treatments for those coronaviruses, in some ways they regretted it. They spent all this time and effort and money on those efforts, and then the viruses petered out. So um, I don't think one could be too critical of companies like Merck who um, decided not to go full born into COVID-19 efforts and, and in terms of vaccine. Uh, because it's, it's defensible. It wasn't clear this was going to emerge as, as a pandemic. And it also in their defense, uh, Merck has focused on a therapeutic, a drug, a pill, actually, for COVID-19. And it's making progress there as well. Were any of them concerned about revealing a, a lot of dirty laundry? In terms of uh, talking to me? The people who were talking to you, the 300-plus uh, scientists, yes. <laughs> That's sort of my uh, job as a journalist, to get people... <laughs> to be honest and open up, and even if uh, they're uncomfortable, to explain to them that it's important. I think this is a historical moment. And um, the, the history I wrote in, in my book, I mean, it's a dramatic narrative. It's supposed to entertain and educate, but it also serves as something of a history book. And I think those that played important roles, look, we'll look back and we're going to thank them. And I think we're a little bit too close right now to these vaccines and to... To, to appreciate what, what an achievement they are. I mean, they really are one of science's, one of even business's greatest achievements, certainly modern science's greatest achievement. And again, I think we're a little too close. There's still a little too too much controversy related to the, the vaccines to appreciate the miracle that, that, that they are. So I think those people that did talk to me, they realized they were involved with something historic and that it was important to open up and, and, and be honest and, and to share information about what happened. Another person you profile is Ugur Sahin, the co-founder of the German company BeyondTech. He's a Turkish immigrant with little virus experience, and he—it he, wasn't it his hope to develop cancer immunotherapies. So, what happened there? Yeah, it's interesting. So, Ugur Sahin is a lifelong cancer researcher, and he was born in Turkey, as you suggest. And his parents moved to Germany, and he became German. And uh, he always had a big belief in the body's immune system and in the ability potentially to teach the immune system to fight off cancer. And he and his wife, uh, Aslam Turki, who's also a cancer researcher, they set up this company, Biontech. And that was the goal, to cure cancer or to address cancer, to, to develop vaccines uh, against cancer. And frankly, for years, they made slow progress. Um, and they're a very interesting, quirky couple. They live in a small apartment still, even though they're, they're billionaires at this point. But they live in a small apartment, mines Germany. They don't own a car. They don't own a television. He takes a bicycle to work each day, um, Uber Sahin. Um, they, what they have is this real dedication and focus on science and on developing therapeutics and, and drugs and vaccines. And that's what... That's all they're focused on. They go on vacation and they log computers with them and they log scientific papers. And even at the pool, they bring those papers to the pool. So they were all about finding vaccines, finding therapeutics, and it was a cancer focus. But they were developing mRNA, this, this approach, which is a, a molecule. And I can discuss it if you'd like, but basically mRNA is a molecule that we all have in our bodies. It tells the cells to, it instructs the cell. M is for messenger, so messenger RNA. Basically, it tells, takes the uh, instructions from the DNA into the body cells and instructs the cells to make certain proteins. And 
what Uger Sahin and his colleagues um, believed was that we can instruct the body to create um, cancer proteins and other kinds of proteins to teach the immune system to fight off the real thing. So they shifted, and to their credit, they were early. Uger Sahin was really concerned about this pandemic. We're talking in Jan early January 2020. It wasn't obviously yet a pandemic. He was convinced it was going to be a pandemic, and he said, you know what? We've been working on, we've been honing this approach, this mRNA approach for a cancer vaccine. Why don't we uh, turn on a dime and see if we can develop uh, and build a vaccine against this new coronavirus? Well, it's interesting that uh, COVID-19 uh, became a problem in Europe before it became one in the United States. And yet, uh, except for BioNTech, uh, the, these companies were American companies. Uh, what happened to the European drug companies? Yeah, um, I would argue that there were some attempts at vaccines and therapeutics in Europe and, and, and elsewhere, and they're just not as effective as the American ones. And it's also kind of striking, Uber Sahin's, again, German, born in Turkey. Uh, Stefan Bansell is an immigrant to the United States. He was originally from France, from Marseille, and then he uh, moved to France, to the United States. The CEO of, of Pfizer, uh, Albert Bourla, he was originally Greek. So it's a real immigrant story, too. Um, and they all found success in the United States and either based here, like Pfizer, obviously, and, and Moderna, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or they got their, their backing, they got their help from United States investors, that's BioNTech, which eventually worked with, with Pfizer. And they all say, these executives say that um, only in America can you get these kind of vaccines done, largely because you've got groups of investors who are willing to write huge checks, we're talking $10, $100 million to these companies without any proof uh, that of success, just on the hopes of success down the, the line. So investors are, are willing to, to step up and, and roll the dice here in the United States. And sometimes it, it leads to, to vaccines that save the world. Well, Viagra is, I mean, Pfizer, I was thinking <laughs> Viagra. Pfizer makes a lot of money from Viagra. So Pfizer is the, the only one of these three companies that was a huge pharmaceutical company already. What led its CEO, the man you just mentioned, Albert Bourla, to push for a fast COVID-19 vaccine? Well, it, it took a little while, actually. There's a sci senior scientist at Pfizer who cautions, he warns Uber Sahin, hey, don't spend too much time on a that, That's Mi Mikhail uh, Dolston? Um, he was among them. Um, Phil Dorbitzer is really the one who kind of said, you know what? Um, don't, don't spend too much time on it. And he, I know where he's coming from. He, again, he, he knew the history. He knew that coronaviruses die out or historically die out and they generally don't lead to, to pandemics. So it, it took a little while for Sahin to convince Pfizer to work with them, but it, eventually he did. And Borla got on board, the CEO of Pfizer to his credit. And on the one hand, yes, they're a giant company. We all know Pfizer, but they're not a vaccine giant. They had closed down their um, their disease, infectious disease group years earlier. So they're not the most likely candidate to work with BioNTech. And to their credit, the two companies got together. And they said, hey, we're going to go all out and, and, and try to build one of these vaccines. And, and it saves thousands of lives, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. 
When I was a kid growing up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, we hated Pfizer because it had a big plant that created terrible smells yeah. on, on Flushing yeah. Avenue and I think on uh, Flushing and Lee or Flushing and Nostrand. Uh, it was really <laughs> we, we, we would hold our nose when we were on the bus. That's interesting. Well, listen, there's always been a resentment about big pharma in general. And, and, and for good reason. You know, there's the pricing issue. Um, there are other uh, step things have made, not necessarily smells everywhere, but mm-hmm. um, they don't always um, um, uh, find favor in, in people. But I, I, I've received uh, an education and I talk to scientists within these companies, the researchers and there's a real dedication to, to saving lives, and that's what they're about. And yet, yes, money is important to companies, to shareholders, and money can be a good incentive to scientists and researchers, too. But I also was really struck by their dedication. And, and, and frankly, it takes years of, of frustration to, to arrive at some of these breakthroughs I write about in my book. They're not overnight. They seem overnight sometimes, but they're no kind of easy eureka moments sometimes these scientists spend years in, in the lab and making incremental progress and that kind of really has has impressed me in, in, in the research for the book another one of the people you profile is dan barouche a boston aids researcher who's employed questionable and even dangerous techniques but didn't he develop a vaccine approach that led to the johnson and johnson vaccine Yes. So Dan is an interesting guy. He believes in something called the adenovirus approach. And the adenovirus approach, to vaccines in general, the adenovirus approach basically means um, hitching a ride, uh, having uh, some genetic material, hitch a ride onto a virus. So basically you're injecting a virus into the body. And you say to yourself, well, wait, why would I want to inject the virus into my body? Well, the answer is that the virus is harmless. It's been made harmless. So it's not going to uh, spread and infect you with, with, with its, its virus. It's going to bring a um, the genetic message. And in this case, the genetic message is to create a spike protein. Um, this adenovirus gets into the body. And this is, as you said, the J&J vaccine. It's also the Oxford Astra approach. It gets into the body, teaches the immune system, and it builds a, the spike protein such that the immune system is alerted, is educated. And that's the whole idea. What, what is a vaccine? A vaccine is, is a, a shot that teaches the immune system, educates the immune system, so that um, next time it experiences the real thing, it's usually it's not the real thing, uh, often or usually with a with vaccine, it's a killed virus sometimes or a, a weakened virus. That's historically what vaccines are. But today, as I said, with, with mRNA, it's just a, a message you're not using any piece of the real thing. And with the adenovirus one, the one that Dan uh, developed, you're also not using the real thing. It's a message. You're sending a message to the immune system, to the body, to the cells, teaching the cells to create a protein. And in this case, it's the the spike protein. And the immune system says, aha, this looks foreign. I don't like it so much. I'm going to attack it. And then the next time the body experiences, uh, it it comes into, into, into any kind of contact with that kind of virus, with that kind of protein, it knows to attack it. So yes, as you had said, it's a controversial, for years it was somewhat uncontroversial, partly because Merck used this approach to chase, to try to build a vaccine for HIV, and it didn't work. And not only did it not still, work... We vaccine, still don't have one, do we, for HIV? We don't. We don't. And, and, and Merck's effort was awful, because 
it, it actually harmed people. So there were some people who said, hey, I'm never going to try this adenovirus approach. It, it led to this catastrophe, this, this real disappointment. But to his credit, Dannon and a few other people in Oxford University I write about in my book, they said, no, we're just going to improve uh, instead of dismiss this approach, improve on it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Sees everything you ever wanted One moment Did you capture it? Just let it slip Yo, We're back with Gregory Zuckerman Whose uh, latest book is A Shot to Save the World The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine Published by Portfolio Penguin uh, What about uh, academia? Didn't... Uh, uh, Oxford University scientists weren't they convinced that the that the virus wasn't a true threat? Yeah, um, early on, we're talking January and even February of 2020. This group at Oxford, and it's an interesting group, quirky scientists. There's a scientist named Adrian Hill I write about who um, can he be was, a difficult person. Yeah, you say he was disliked by his peers. Yeah, just just uh, an unlike dislikable personality, or because of the way he approached his work. Dislikable personality. He um is difficult person too. He's very critical of his peers, and and some people are okay with that. He's a someone who'll stand up in a meeting and lash into some a fellow scientist and why their approach is inane and and won't work, and and they're wasting their time. And he's very blunt. And that rubs people the wrong way. Some people say, hey, that's science, and I can handle it, and I can go back and forth with Adrian. So uh, he's a controversial um, figure. Someone compared him to Marmite. You either love him or you you hate him. Um, So uh, that's that's who Adrian Hill is, and he's uh, one of the people that was at the helm of the uh, Oxford uh, effort to build a COVID-19 vaccine. But as you suggest, it took them uh, a few weeks, I would say, to get – serious about the effort. And there was a young scientist who was more concerned. He had, had to convince the colleagues, the senior colleagues, hey, no, this this is something we should be focused on. And they, they were building a vaccine to their credit, but they weren't sort of going all out. But they turned on a dime and, and they did and they were convinced and eventually um, they were in the lead. They kind of blew it and they weren't the first ones to develop a vaccine, but they did. And, and the vaccine isn't quite as effective as the Pfizer-BioNTech one or the Moderna one or even the J&J, but it's quite effective and it's also inexpensive and doesn't have to be kept at cold temperatures. You have to give them credit, and that's really helpful in a lot of the poor areas around the world. Is that where Sarah Gilbert comes into the story? She was a chimpanzee virus specialist who designed a a COVID-19 vaccine. Exactly. So Sarah Gilbert and Adrian Hill, they were like Dan Baruka up in Boston. They believed in adenoviruses. They just used different viruses. So Baruch used a cold virus and said, hey, I'm going to build my vaccine around this cold virus. Again, they, they made it harmless. They took a gene out such that the cold virus is not going to give you a cold. 
but the virus is the is, is what ferries in genetic information to the body to, to, to create a protein. But um, Sarah Gilbert and Adrian Hill said, yeah, we like this approach, but instead of using a, a cold virus, a human cold virus, we're going to use a chimpanzee virus. Hmm. And you say to yourself, well, well I'm going to put a chimpanzee virus into the body. And yeah, people have been experimenting with these things for, for literally decades. And it's a fascinating subset of science. People. Well, we're all primates. Um, how, how close are exactly. we genetically? Exactly. There's a similarity there. Exactly. And um, we all get viruses and uh, the viruses have an impact on us. And, and the idea is, and it's, and it's brilliant, the idea is that the chimpanzee virus is not one that you and I have experienced. So the immune system will, won't fight it off. And that's the concern, frankly, with the virus that's used in the vaccine for the Sputnik vaccine uh, the Russians use. It's called AD5, and that's a more common cold virus. And the worry there is that um, it's just going to be not as effective as some of these other vaccines because it's a relatively common virus, I'm sorry, yeah, virus, cold virus, and because it's, it's relatively common, the immune system fends it off. So when you fend off the vaccine, it's just not effective. So it made sense. It was actually brilliant on the part of uh, Adrian Hill and Sarah Gilbert to be enamored with chimpanzee uh, viruses and how they go about it is just, I don't know, interesting and fascinating to me. And they, they literally, there are people that study the, uh, the excrement of, uh, of chimpanzees to, to isolate the viruses within that excrement. And, you know, it seems uh, uh, un- unlikely uh, pursuit uh, of some, from someone's position as a scientist, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Well, once the, the, the various vaccines were developed and they're not, the same, right? They they all uh, have different approaches. They had to be tested. Um, what is the testing process like? Yeah, so there basically are um, two mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer one and the uh, and the Moderna one, and there are two adenoviruses virus vaccines, the J and J one, and then in the UK you've got the AstraZeneca Oxford one. There's another group that I write about called Novavax that has a separate approach. And we should expect good news from them, I believe, in the next few months. So they all um, had approaches that were unproven. They thought they worked. They suspected they would work. They were pretty confident they would work. But they didn't know for sure. And as you said, they had to be tested. And I was very reassured the um, effort to to test these vaccines was um, done in, in, in thousands, tens of thousands of people, there were no corners that were cut. I know some people are, have concerns. Well, look how fast these vaccines have been developed. They must have cut some corners in terms of testing. And I have not been able to determine anything, any any way in which uh, they cut corners. They just were able to, for various reasons, they had the money, which never was available in the past, partly because of Operation Warp Speed and partly for other reasons. They had the money to do all this stuff simultaneously. In other words, develop the vaccine, test the vaccine, and also manufactured the vaccine. So, um, yeah, they each were tested in tens of thousands. I think it was 44,000 people that were in the first, um, the, the phase three testing for the Pfizer vaccine. And, and you know, frankly, these sh- shots have been about a billion people around the world. So uh, the side effects, we're pretty aware of what they are right now. But I've always been confused about the use of placebos with uh, the, among the, the, the group that's being tested. Are we exposing them to the the disease? No, what they do is they take a group of people that are exposed, well, that are naturally exposed to the disease. In other words, they're not people 
hiding out in their in their dungeons downstairs are people that could potentially get um, the disease. And then within that group, we give half of them the placebo and half of them the vaccine. And then we see, we step back after a certain amount of time, and then we see who got COVID. And if the people, the bulk of the people got COVID from the placebo group and not from the vaccine group, that helps prove efficacy. That helps prove that the vaccines are protective. But and in that the case way, of but all then these, we're giving people COVID. I'm sorry? But aren't we then infecting people with COVID? No, we are not prevent, potentially preventing them from getting COVID. So there is a debate about what they call challenge studies, where you actually would give someone COVID. And in England, other places, that bigger believers in those challenge studies. We have ethical issues, and it's a big debate among scientists. But we don't um, ever give people natural virus here in the United States, and, that, and we didn't for these these vaccines. And we didn't really need to. The virus was so so prevalent in society and and they tested in other kinds of countries too south africa other kinds of places so these were these were um areas of society where the the vaccine was was cropping up was prevalent so that we could you're right some people are getting the placebo but at the time we didn't know that the vaccines were were um protective so it was there wasn't any ethical issue of not giving people a vaccine that wasn't proven yet now, why do you think so many people have been suspicious of the vaccines? It's been claimed that they contain microchips, that they can alter your DNA, can have an impact on both male and female fertility, can make p- parts of your body magnetic. And, of course, there's that Nicki Minaj tweet, the, the, her famous tweet. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, this, I think the explanation is, Sadly, in our society, uh, more people than ever rely on YouTube, Facebook, friends, rumors, as opposed to picking up a newspaper, picking up a book, talking to, listening to scientists. I also think there's some reflection of sort of a DIY, do-it-yourself kind of society where I know better, I can do it myself, I don't need people. I mean, the experts have made mistakes over the years and People seize on that, and there's a, a, a sense of I, I, I can figure it out myself. But um, to me, it's just horrifying that um, that internists that have treated people for decades, patients, the patients are ignoring the uh, the warnings and the advice of those same internists. Uh, and and it's all just it doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. We, we you step on a nail and you go get a tetanus shot. You don't ask where it's from and how it's made and you just go get a tetanus shot. And for some reason, when it comes to COVID, um, people are asking a lot of questions. And, and I get it. I do. I am sensitive to the, the, the point that um, it's a new approach, especially mRNA. It hasn't improved before. And that makes people concerned. But uh, thankfully, it's been tested. And now, you know, it's, it's been over a year of people getting these shots and um, the, the side effects. Uh, sometimes once in a blue moon um, are not pleasant. Um we, we, we sometimes there's a heart issue for some young men, not usually a very serious one, but there's a small percentage, a very small percentage with mRNA that have seen some side effects. So I don't want to um, uh, paper over the fact that there are some side effects, but relative to COVID, I mean, I'm sure the audience, I, I know I, I know people that have died of COVID um, who have long COVID that are still suffering from it, and it's awful stuff. Well, I've always wondered about the the side effects. I had none. 
uh, except for perhaps a little tenderness on, on the spot that uh, I got the shot, which was no different than the tenderness I, I've had when I've had other shots. And yet other people uh, have serious problems. So uh, is that just because of their their DNA or something else that's going on in their bodies? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think they're 100% sure. When you have a real event, when you have some uh, side effect, and there have been people, I know and you do too, I'm sure, who spent days in bed, um, it's, it's a sign that the immune system is being revved up and it's reacting to the education it's getting. The protein, the spike protein that's been being introduced to the body so, you know, consciously, you know, it's a good thing that your body's reacting this way, but it's an awful experience to go through. I, too, didn't get much of a reaction. So um, they're, they're different. But, but I, I, I don't think it's been determined why some people react certain ways and why others don't. Why do you think it's become such a political thing? Uh, for example, Ken Weiler, a New Hampshire Republican lawmaker, recently emailed a 52-page report to other lawmakers that claims that coronavirus vaccines contain a, quote, living organism with testicles. Oh, uh, wild imaginations nowadays. The thing about mRNA, and you, in, in my book I make it very clear, the reason why the science, scientific community was so wary of using mRNA for years, no one really wanted to play with it. They all knew there was a possibility. They all knew it brought the instructions into the cell and you can hypothetically have the cell create any kind of protein which means you've got a factor in your own body so it, there was always that that promise but, but why didn't people want to use mrna because the body's enzymes the cell's enzymes chop it up so quickly and it's hard to get it all the way into the cell so in other words people who are worried that this mrna is sticking around should have no concern because that was always the worry for years that it didn't stick around. Scientists never wanted to work with this thing, this molecule, because it, it did not stick around. So um, I, people worry that it's going to affect your DNA, and it just um, it can't. Again, within moments, it's chopped up and eliminated by the cell. Uh, so I think, getting back to your question, I, I think everything is politicized today. Everything, every topic, every issue, everybody has to take a stance. Um, and instead of saying, you know, give the Trump administration a lot of credit, they um, they imagined they came up with the idea for Operation Warp Speed. I don't want to give Warp Speed all the credit for these vaccines. Again, my book is all about the decades of, of tire, tireless work that was done. But you've got to give um, Operation Warp Speed some credit. And, um, and, then, they, the and, then, they, and then they undermined it as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's always confined, confounded me. I would have embraced, if I was the administration, the last administration, I would have said, hey, this is what we produced. It's the greatest vaccine ever, the fastest vaccine ever. And, and frankly, President Trump did say that a few times, but for whatever reason, um, people, some people in society haven't taken to that and they've been uh, wary of these. So it, it, it's concerning. Yeah. You're listening to WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. I'm Leonard Lopate. This is Leonard Lopate at Large. And my guest is Gregory Zuckerman, uh, New York Times bestselling author, whose latest book, the one we're discussing, is A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine, published by Portfolio uh, Penguin. Uh, you've included some of the lesser-known vaccine developments throughout history in this book as well, not just 
the ones that address COVID-19. Um, they want to talk about a few of them, like Gail Smith, the molecular biologist who theorized that insect viruses could be used to infect insect cells to produce specific proteins in, in the 1980s. Yeah, I, I do find vaccine work really fascinating. It usually involves scientists who are imaginative, they're persistent, uh, they're entrepreneurial, and they overcome all kinds of skepticism. So um, Gail is among them. Gail worked at a company, I write about that at one point looked like it was uh, in, the, in the lead position to develop an AIDS vaccine. It obviously failed, um, but his approach, which is using um, insect cells and um, and, um, you know, just so your audience is aware, it's not unusual to use animal cells to develop, uh, to build vaccines uh, for the flu virus uh, vaccine. We use chicken cells. And Gail's idea was using insect cells. He saw it as uh, more effective um, and easier to do, faster to do and effective. And it, it has led his approach. He's not a famous guy by any stretch of the imagination, uh, unassuming, quirky, a little bit odd, even unusual. But his approach has led to um, various uh, different um, vaccines and, that have been used by other companies, um, and they're effective. And, and um, he set out to, um, after failing with, with, with AIDS, but he didn't give up. He went to his little company um, called Novavax in Maryland, and they, he could have gone elsewhere. And I kind of wonder why, why he didn't. Um, why didn't he go elsewhere? And his view was, you know, they leave me alone. <laughs> they let me do my thing. And a lot of the scientists, I, again, I talked to, they they just want to be left alone. And they like their work. They're in the lab. They can spend years working on, on it. And again, he, he you know, to his, to his extent, to, to his credit, he uh, was able to, um, the HPV vaccine and other vaccines uh, he contributed to, but he gave it all up to join this little company, Novavax. They spent years working on Every kind of vaccine, RSV and this disease, that disease, this illness, that illness, never had success. And as of early 2020, they were on their on, on the ropes. They had barely any money left. And they said, you know what, let's try one last time. Let's try to build a COVID-19 vaccine. And it's been really effective. It's been um, tested and it's not approved yet. But I do think it's going to join the mRNA ones, the adenovirus ones. And be very helpful, uh, and I think it'll be rolled out in the next uh, few months. Well, that's because you say that it's uh, likely to be impossible to eradicate uh, SARS-CoV-19; that it will eventually become an endemic seasonal virus like influenza. That's what I believe. I believe, unfortunately, we're never going to be able to rid ourselves of this virus, of this coronavirus. But that shouldn't be a reason for people to be too discouraged. Um, we have four other coronaviruses circulating in society and they lead to um, colds, the flu that we had. So we, we, we'll, this one, I believe, eventually will be just like that. And, and, and until we get there, it'll crop up here and there. There'll be, um, especially in unvaccinated um, communities, that there'll be issues there that'll crop up and we'll have to deal with and mask up and but I, I do think that because mRNA, uh, you build it in a lab and the adenovirus one, you build a lab, they can adjust these vaccines. So if there's a new variant, they can go back in the lab and change 
the sequence, the, the building blocks for these vaccines. And um, ta-da, ta-da, you've got a new vaccine that'll be really effective. And um, they, haven't, they haven't done it yet. Right, right now we're boosting, uh, when we talk about boosters, it's the original vaccine. But at some point, I think they'll be able to switch over to a, a vaccine that takes on a new variant, a new strain, and handle it. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the future, but I do think that we're going to have to deal with this coronavirus uh, for, for for a long time. Well, there are going to be mutations, as there have been with uh, influenza as well. So uh, it's each, I guess, each flu season, we're going to see a, another variant and have to deal with that. Yeah. The question is, is it going to be worse than Delta? We, we could have a new variant that isn't as harmful as Delta. Uh, viruses do morph. They, they change um, their new variants, but uh, there's reason to think that maybe it, the next um, adjustment, next change, won't be as dangerous as intransmittable as this current uh, Delta one. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Let's see what happens. You also uh, described the onset of the AIDS epidemic in 1979. We're, we're talking now about, what, 32 years ago. Uh, and the unsuccessful efforts to produce a vaccine for HIV, do we have any idea of why it's been so difficult? Yeah, HIV makes uh, COVID, makes uh, the COVID-19 uh, disease just look like kids play. Um, HIV is different. It's a, it's a virus that's different within each of, of the people that it, it affects Um so you can't have a one-size-fits-all vaccine as of right now. Um, it, it, it takes over the immune system. Not only does the immune system find itself unable to fight it off, but um, it commandeers, HIV commandeers the immune system. It's really an awful virus, and, and we really haven't um, experienced anything like it, thankfully, um, since then. And um, we're still trying to understand it better and tackle it in some of the Scientists, the heroes that I write about in my book, are focused, like Dan Baruch, we mentioned, are, are focused on HIV, and that's their real passion. Mm-hmm. Adrian Hill is focused on malaria. That's his real passion. So some of them sort of put their work aside. And they, they're also develop. looking at multiple sclerosis and, and cancer. Yes. I'm optimistic. I, I'm not confident, but I'm optimistic about the future. And the idea is just like they have been able to um, – rev up the immune system and teach the immune system, turn on the immune system, as it were, to fight off COVID-19. Perhaps these same researchers, they're saying to themselves, maybe we can also turn off the immune system. And that is means that they can potentially take on autoimmune uh, diseases, MS, that kind of thing. Uh, and maybe, as you said, suggest maybe they can take on cancer. And, and, and just like we've been able to insert through a vaccine, the spike protein from the coronavirus into the body to teach the body to fight it off. Maybe we could insert a, a protein from a cancer and teach the body to fight that off. Now, again, they've spent years on this work. Um, so one could be skeptical and say, well, why just because they figured out COVID, can they figure out cancer? I would counter by saying they've made so much money, these companies from COVID-19 vaccines, and they're plowing it all into mm-hmm. these new efforts. So that gives me a reason for optimism. They've got more resources than ever before. And they're darlings of the stock market these days. 
Really are. They really are. We're talking uh, this company, Moderna, BioNTech, Novavax. Um, I yeah, can, there's. I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. But sure. um, my great thanks to you, George Zuckerman. His latest book, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for COVID-19 Vaccine, published by Portfolio Penguin Books. Uh, Mr. Zuckerman is a special writer at the, the Wall Street Journal, where he writes about business, economic, and uh, investing topics. He's a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism, and he appears regularly on CNBC, Fox, MSNBC. He's the author of other books, including The Greatest Trade Ever, The Frackers, and also The Man Who Solved the Market. Thank you again for being on our show. Thank you. Have a great day. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archives at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else that podcasts are available. You can also find links to our over 500 past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during this difficult time. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please call it right now to help us to continue bringing you our show's unique in-depth content weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, but that means we rely on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air. It's the way this whole crazy experiment in totally independent radio works. So if you like the sound of no corporate overlords telling us how to do this show or sponsors saying you, you shouldn't talk about that, why not come on board and help us to keep it going? We, we may not have all the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at WBAI, but we are refreshingly independent. So please call 212-209-2950 right now or go online to give to WBAI.org to keep this show coming to you on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Thanks from all of us at the station to everyone who has contributed so far. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Richard Jacobs will discuss his book, Democracy of Dollars, where natural and constitutional rights go to the highest bidder. We'll see you then. <laughs>